passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. It was the fall of 2003. It was late August and early September when the media was especially focused on someone they called the Ten Commandment Judge. Maybe you remember his name. It was Roy Moore. He was uh, head of the, I think he was Chief Justice in Alabama. And ACLU had sued the uh, Alabama because they had a large monument of the Ten Commandments in the Senate or the Judiciary Building there in Alabama. And the ACLU said that violated the separation of church and state. And that, that monument of the Ten Commandments had to be removed. And Roy Moore uh, refused to remove it. And as a result, he, he lost his job because of it. Now, I don't know what you necessarily think about the rightness or the wrongness of the Ten Commandments being displayed in a public government building, but one thing really isn't in question. And that is that our ethical system, our legal system, and our judicial system ultimately, at its base, are founded on the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments have played a big role in the shaping and forming of American life and, 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 and politics. But while the Ten Commandments are foundational to who we are as a nation, the truth is that nowadays people don't know many of the Ten Commandments. I looked at some surveys, and one survey I found was interesting. They surveyed um, 15 to 35-year-olds on how many of the Ten Commandments can you name. And the average person could only name two. What it shows is that a lot of people really don't know the Ten Commandments. So today, my hope is that we can improve that average a little bit. We're going to begin a study of the Ten Commandments. We're going to take one commandment a week, and we're going to learn what they are. Now, the title of this series is called Freedom in the Ten Commandments. Because oftentimes what we think of, we think of the Ten Commandments, we think of rules, we think of restrictions, we think of taking away life. But that's not the Ten Commandments' purpose. The Ten Commandments are there for our freedom. They are there for our good and our health. I'll say this many times throughout this series. You know, it was after God set his people free that he gave them the Ten Commandments to keep his people free. Let me say it again. It was after God set his people free, he gave them the Ten Commandments to keep his people free. And that'll become one of the major themes throughout this study. Now, this morning, we're actually going to not look at uh, one commandment in particular. We're just going to look at an overview, sort of, of the total Ten Commandments. Uh, these are the, this is what I plan to do. Number one, we're going to just give you some background on the Ten Commandments, the story that they fall into, because the Ten Commandments actually take place in a storyline of biblical history, and we need to know what that is. It'll help us understand it. Uh, next, we're going to just going to look at a few things we can learn about the Ten Commandments as a whole. And that'll help us as we start to study them, to have an appetite for them and to what to expect from them. Then the third thing we're going to do is answer a question I know that Pastor Jordan wanted me to talk about as we worked on this sermon together, is what is the role of the Old Testament law in the New Testament Christian's life? 
And so we'll, we'll answer that. So that'll be what we're going to focus on this morning. So let's go ahead and dive right in. Take out your outlines and follow along. What is the background of the Ten Commandments is what we're going to begin with. Now, the biblical story goes like this. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God created everything. He created the universe. He created this earth. He created animals. He created plants. And then he also made Adam and Eve, not homo and sapien, (laughs) You know, he made Adam and Eve, and he made them in the image of God. Genesis chapter 3, though, things changed. There was only one thing that Adam and Eve were not to do, and that was to eat of the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil. And that's the one thing they chose to do. They chose to sin, and sin entered the world. And for the first time, Adam and Eve had a body that began the process of death. Sort of like unplugging a laptop from the wall. You know, it's running on battery. It's just a matter of time until it runs down. But death didn't just come to Adam and Eve. Death came to this entire planet. In fact, the Bible tells us that the whole creation is now into the bondage of decay based on Adam and Eve's sin. Death was introduced into this world because of sin. And things began to spin out of control rather quickly. Only one generation after Adam and Eve, when it came to Cain and Abel, uh, Cain disabled Abel permanently. He killed him. And it continued to decline from there. In fact, it wasn't long until God hit the complete reset button. He decided to flood the entire earth and wipe everybody out because everybody was so incredibly wicked. But God, as he often does, has grace in the midst of his judgment. And he showed grace to Noah and to his family and carried them through the flood and the ark while he destroyed everyone else. From there, what happened is the earth began to repopulate. And God once again reached down and he grabbed a man named Abraham. And he called Abraham. He he brought him from the land of Ur to the land of Canaan. He promised Abraham a couple things. That he would have as many descendants as there are stars in the heavens. And that the entire earth would be blessed through him. It took a long time, but God eventually provided Abraham with a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob actually had 12 sons, but 10 of those sons did not like one of those sons, a man named Joseph. So they sold him into slavery, into Egypt. Do you remember that? And then in God's strange providential ways, he took Joseph, who was a slave, Joseph, who spent time in jail for a crime he didn't commit, and he completely turned life upside down. And he moved him from a slave to being second in command of Egypt itself. God actually used Joseph to save his wicked brothers and to save his family. What happened from there is uh, Joseph's brothers and his father and his family went into Egypt, only about 70 in number. But then 400 years passed. You remember this? And over 400 years, they went from a small group of 70 to a group of several million. 
And at that time, there arose a Pharaoh who didn't know about Joseph and all the good he had done for the nation. He hated the Israelites, and he chose to oppress them and make life terrible for them. And God raised up a man named Moses. Moses, who had a Jewish mother, but was adopted into the house of Pharaoh and raised as Pharaoh's daughter's adoptive son. Things looked good until one day he saw an Egyptian slave master being a Hebrew, and in anger he killed him, and he had to run into the wilderness. He spent the next 40 years of his life watching grass grow, taking care of sheep. When God finally appeared to him in a burning bush, he said, go back to Egypt and set my people free. Moses obeyed and went back, and God did 10 plagues on Egypt, as you remember. And finally, the Pharaoh decided to set God's people free. They left Egypt triumphantly, a huge number. They crossed the Red Sea on dry ground, and the Scripture literally tells us that there are walls of water on the side. But when the Egyptian army tried to do the same, the walls of water collapsed in on them, and they were drowned. Once again, we see God's judgment, but we also see God's mercy mixed into it to his people who don't deserve it. God at that point led Moses and the people back to the exact same place where the burning bush was, Mount Sinai. And there at Mount Sinai, God entered into a covenant with his people. You will be my people, and I will be your God. This is where the Ten Commandments come along. Now let's just read what it was like for God's people right there on the, um, the foot of Mount Sinai. Let me read it to you here. Exodus chapter 19, verses 16 through 25. Imagine yourself being in this group. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. God said to Moses, go down and, and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to, to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, well, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai. You yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain, consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down. And bring up and come up bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and let the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people 
and told them. Well, it all began with a burning bush. But at this point, it's not a burning bush. It's an entire burning mountain. It's a shock and awe campaign. Moses speaks. God responds in thunder. The entire mountain is quaking. People are terrified. Now, why do you think that God has it set up as a scene like this when he brings his people out to meet him? Here's what I think. I think they're beginning to understand the nature of the God that saved them, the power of the God that saved them. And when God is going to give them the Ten Commandments, there are ten commandments, not ten suggestions. It's serious stuff. Realize the God that you're dealing with. Now, let's go ahead and read the commandments in Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. That ends the reading of the Ten Commandments. Incidentally, by the way, the Ten Commandments are not just found in Exodus chapter 20. They're also found in Deuteronomy chapter 5. The second generation, Moses repeated them, saying, oh, by the way, guys, don't forget these. These are the Ten Commandments, real important stuff. Now, what I'd like to do at this point is just look at some lessons we can learn about 
God from these commandments in general. Uh, next week is graduation. The week after that, we'll start looking at one commandment a week and studying them specifically. Here's the first thing we can learn. God's grace came before God's law. God's grace came before God's law. Notice how the story unfolded. God chose to save his people, take them out of slavery in Egypt, and they did nothing to save themselves. God did it all, and they just enjoyed the blessing of it, but it was after he saved them that he finally gave him his law to show them how to please God. God didn't say, do these 10 things perfectly, and then I will save you from slavery. He said, I will save you, and let me show you afterwards how to live pleasing to me. It's the same thing for us with Jesus Christ, isn't it? We were in bondage to Satan, to sin, and death. God raised up a Savior much greater than Moses, Jesus, his own son. What did Jesus do? He, he saved us. We didn't do a bunch of things to save ourselves or to deserve being saved. God saved us when we didn't deserve it at all. Grace came first. And after Jesus graciously saved us because we trusted in what he did for us, then and only then comes the commandments. Now that I've saved you, let me show you how you can live for me. The next thing we learn is this. After God set his people free, his commandments were meant to keep his people free. He begins the commandments with this, because it's very important. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God's purpose for his people was to free them. They were in the land of Egypt, which is the land of death, but he brought them out of Egypt. He was bringing them to the promised land, which was near God, which was life for them. They were in a world of slavery, but he wants to bring them into a world of freedom. The purpose of the Ten Commandments is after God set his people free, he's giving them these Ten Commandments to help them to learn to live free lives. You see, they, all they knew in Egypt was the life of the Egyptians. The Egyptians worshipped multiple gods. The Egyptians had a low value on human life. The Hebrews were slaves. They knew about the being of the low value of human life. The Egyptians had a low value on sexuality. God says, no, you don't worship multiple gods, you just worship me. That's the way to freedom. God says, human life is not cheap. You don't murder it, you respect it, because I created it. God says, sexuality is something to be treasured, not to be squandered. That's why he talks about adultery. All these commandments are given to keep his people free. Number three, God's laws were meant to reflect God's character. 
Sometimes you wonder, you know, why didn't God give a different set of laws? Why didn't he come along and all of a sudden say, well, let's just change this one on murder and say murder's okay? Well, God couldn't do that because that wouldn't properly reflect God's character. These laws tell us what God is like. Think of it this way. If you've ever tried to build a public building, you know that we have all kinds of laws in our society that make it difficult because everything has to be handicapped accessible, right? Gets real expensive that way. Well, why do we have these laws? We have these handicap accessible laws because our society values the handicapped. That's the way it's supposed to be. We want the handicapped involved in our everyday worlds and lives. That's why the laws are written the way they are. They're supposed to reflect the value of the handicap that we have in our society. In the same way, God's laws reflect God's character. If you want to really start to understand what God is like, a good place to begin is to study the Ten Commandments. Because they're going to tell you what's important to God. What He's like on the inside. For instance, it talks about in the commandments about taking one day in every seven as a day of rest and refreshment and of worship to the Lord. Why is it in there? Because that's important to God. And he wants that to be part of our worship to God. A day of rest and refreshment in him. Number four, God's laws reflect the way we were designed to live. They don't just reflect God's character, but they also reflect the way God created us to live. You, you, you go to the Walmart. Say you go to Walmart and you buy a, an air compressor. That air compressor comes with an instruction manual, right? And you use the air compressor according to the instruction manual. You'll have maximum joy and longevity of your air compressor from Walmart as long as you obey the instructions, but you can use the air compressor in other ways. It's just going to destroy it. The Ten Commandments are sort of the same thing. The best life that you can live, the most joy-filled life you can live, is a life that's lived within the boundaries of the Ten Commandments. That's what they are. They're instructions on how to live life the way God has designed us to live it. For instance, the Ten Commandments talk about uh, not committing adultery. And we're going to see how it talks about sexual fidelity. Show me one person out there that says, boy, am I so thankful I was promiscuous. It made my life better. Boy, am I so thankful that I didn't reserve my sexuality for marriage. They're not going to find it. You see, God's laws are there for our good, our freedom. Number five, we don't break God's laws, they break us. And I just want to mention it this way. We often say, well, I broke one of the commandments. Technically, that really doesn't happen, does it? We don't hurt God's laws. When we break them, they hurt us. So I just encourage you to reframe the way you think about that. And number six, God's laws reveal what it means to love. Jesus says it this way. 
And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest and the first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what Jesus says is you can take these 10 commandments and you can sort of make a cliff note of it and you can reduce them to two commandments, which is love God and love your neighbor. And what's interesting, if you look at the 10 commandments, the first four commandments are about loving God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall honor the Sabbath day. You shall not make an image of another God. It's all about loving God. The last six commandments are all about loving our neighbor. Honor your father and mother is a way to love your father and mother. You know, don't murder your neighbor is a way to love your neighbor. Don't steal from your neighbor is a way to love your neighbor. So what you see, the Ten Commandments are really about loving God and loving people. Now, my purpose on the introduction is this. When we start to talk about the Ten Commandments, the first thing that comes to many people's mind is, oh no, it's a bunch of rules, it's a bunch of regulations, it's all here to take away my life. And that's the exact opposite of the Ten Commandments' purpose. The Ten Commandments are there to show you what it means to love. The Ten Commandments there are to show you how to live your life and what is the best possible way to live your life. Reflect God's character and reflect the way God made you. The Ten Commandments there, the commandments are for our joy and for our freedom. When God set his people free, he gave them the Ten Commandments to show them how to live so they would keep his people free. And this is why the psalmist says this, Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. He loves God's commandments. Now, let me flip to the other side. This is another big question I wanted to cover this morning, is how do the Old Testament laws relate to us New Testament Christians? The Ten Commandments are probably the, the poster child example of some of these Old Testament laws, but they're not the only laws that are out there. If you look at the, uh, those who count these things, will tell you there's 613 laws in the first five books of the Old Testament. Someone has estimated that the first five books, 68.5% of it are laws given by God. And some of these laws, unlike the Ten Commandments, which are rather clear, some of these laws are really rather strange. Like, here's one. Exodus 34, 26. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Well, that's good because I wasn't going to do that anytime soon. And how about this one? A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. Okay, ladies, how many of you are wearing pants? Uh-oh. Looks like you violated one of the commandments. But some of these commandments we really like and we agree with. Like, what about this one? Leviticus 19, verse 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. We love some of the Old Testament commandments, but then we think maybe I should ignore other of the Old Testament commandments. 
How do we make our way through all these laws? Not only that, but sometimes it even appears the New Testament itself is a little bit unclear on these things. Look what it says. It says in Luke 16, 17, but it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Well, looks like Jesus says, you have to keep everything. But then when you get down to Paul, and he says this, you are not under the law, but under grace. Well, Paul says, you don't have to keep the law. So what is it? Do we have to keep everything? Like Jesus said, or we just say we're under grace, like Paul said. What are we supposed to do about this? The key to understanding this is what theologians will tell you, is that when you look at these Old Testament laws, they actually fall into three different categories. There are what we call ceremonial laws, there are civil laws, and there are moral laws. Let me explain this to you. The first one I want to look at is ceremonial laws. The ceremonial laws are the laws in the Old Testament that have to do with worship in the Old Testament. Like sacrifices, what were they supposed to offer? What are clean and unclean animals? What does ritual purity look like? When do the sacrifices take place? What do the priests have to wear? There's a lot of stuff with Old Testament ceremony in it. And this is what the Bible tells us. That all of this Old Testament worship was really prescribed and detailed because it was meant to point to Jesus. Something about all these Old Testament things will point to Jesus. And when Jesus came, all of them became obsolete. Obsolete. We don't have to obey them anymore. In fact, the scriptures will tell you this. Hebrews chapter 10, 1 through 4. 4. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciences of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The writer of Hebrews says all the Old Testament ceremonial laws did was to point to the fact that it was only by death that sin could be atoned for. And they all pointed to Jesus. And ultimately, they're now made obsolete by the coming of Jesus. He says this more. He says the same thing a little bit later in that chapter. But when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. You see, this is talking about ceremonial laws. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So, 
when the Bible talks about in the New Testament that we are not under obligation to obey the law, almost every single time it means the ceremonial law of Jewish worship. We don't have to offer the blood of bulls and goats. And by the way, even if we wanted to, we couldn't. God in his wisdom had uh, Jerusalem destroyed in 70 A.D., the temple was destroyed. The Muslims took it over in 600 A.D. And there's been the Dome of the Rock there ever since. So the Temple Mount is not something you can offer sacrifices on anyway. And that's okay. Because it's all made obsolete by Jesus. So the ceremonial laws are obsolete. But there's another kind of law called the civic laws in the Old Testament. And those were the laws that pertain to the operation of the nation. Sort of like we have traffic laws and we have criminal laws in our society. They also have been made obsolete, but for a different reason. Here's the reason the civic laws are obsolete. And this is it. The New Testament church is not the Old Testament Israel. The New Testament church is not the Old Testament state of Israel. We have a king. His name is Jesus. But his kingdom, the Bible tells us, is a spiritual kingdom. It's not a physical kingdom of a specific country or a state that has to operate under these Old Testament laws. Now, incidentally, by the way, there are some people out there who will tell you that the Old Testament civic laws should be adopted by our country and applied in our country. They're called reconstructionists. They're called uh, theonomists. Those are some big words. Maybe you ever read those words. You'll know what they're talking about. And there's some truth, but there's also some error. The truth is there's probably some good things you can learn from Old Testament civic laws that we can learn from and adopt. But the error is this. You cannot adopt them lock, stock, and barrel. Simply because Jesus has made them obsolete and God is working through his church, which is a spiritual kingdom, not a physical kingdom anymore. The ceremonial laws then are obsolete the civic laws, while we can learn from them, they're also obsolete because Jesus Christ and the church is the way we go now. There's another group out there called the moral laws. The moral laws are not expired. The Ten Commandments are the poster child of the moral laws in the Old Testament. Incidentally, the Ten Commandments are the only commandments written by the finger of God in stone. <laughs> like when God writes it with his finger in stone, I think it's supposed to last, right? The other thing you find out is when you go to the New Testament, every single one of the Old Testament Ten Commandments are repeated and reinforced by Jesus and the apostles. So they're not expired they're still applicable for us to teach us how to live a moral and pleasing life to God. Incidentally, it gets really interesting. When you look in the New Testament and you look at the way they list sins, just casually like sin lists, 
they almost always put sinless in the very same order as the Old Testament Ten Commandments. I'll give you one example here. It's uh, Matthew 15, verse 19. I could give you many of these. For out of the heart come evil thoughts. Murder, command six. Adultery, he says. And sexual immorality, which are command seven. Theft, which is command eight. False witnessing and slandering, which is command nine. You see how this, they're just importing the Ten Commandments and using them right here. So, the Ten Commandments were given in the Old Testament after God set his people free. They were given to keep his people free. And for us, they are still applicable because God has set us free from Satan's sin and death by a much greater Savior than Moses, by Jesus himself. And these moral laws still apply. And living within them keeps us free. Now, here's another tough question. How can we apply the obsolete civil and ceremonial laws? What people do is they see some of these civil and ceremonial laws and go, well, guess what? It doesn't apply to me anymore. Skip. And that's not exactly the way that the scriptures want us to handle things. Why the Old Testament civil and ceremonial laws do not directly apply to us, they can teach us about God, his character, and his will for us to live pleasing to him. They can teach us about God, his character, and how to live pleasing for him. And Paul gives us an example of this in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 9, 9 through 11. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is that a moral law? That's more like a civic law. Like you don't muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain. And then he says, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? For it was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Well, they're not worried about oxen at this point. But the purpose was when the oxen were treading out the grain, they should be able to enjoy some of the fruit of their labors. And Paul says this principle is applicable to us. When people are working hard in the church, they shouldn't have to do everything for free. They should be able to enjoy some material blessing from the people that are being served. Now we can take this and really apply this right into everyday life. Say you own a restaurant and you have people that work for you at the restaurant. They work an eight-hour shift. Do you allow them to enjoy a little of a, a material blessing from the food that they have prepared? Like, you're working an eight-hour shift. Hey, we just want to bless you with one free meal because you should enjoy some of the fruit of your labors. That's a way to apply this kind of law. Now, let me give you another interesting one. This will stretch you a little bit. Maybe stretch me. It says this, remember in Deuteronomy 14.21, 
For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. That's very important. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Hmm. Leviticus 19.19. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth with two kinds of material. Oh no, the farmers are now concerned. No hybrids. And guess what? If you're wearing a cotton polyester blend, you're in trouble. Well, what's going on here? Obviously, this is part of one of these Old Testament laws. It's part of the civic laws. It's not directly applicable to us today, but what can we learn from it? Here's what you need to know. These laws were given as the Israelites were preparing to go into the promised land where the Canaanites lived. The Canaanites believed in something called sympathetic magic. In other words, if you wanted to increase the fertility of your flocks, like a flock of goats, you boiled a young goat in its mother's milk to increase the fertility of your flocks. You wanted to increase the fertility of your fields. You put um, seeds of two different kinds of plants in that same field to marry them. Or you wore clothing woven of two different strands of fiber to marry them. And they believed that increased the productivity and the fertility of your fields. What God is saying is this. He says, guys, that's not the way you operate as my people. You don't chase after empty pagan fertility customs. Where do God's people turn when they're looking for fertility? Where do God's people turn when they're looking for children? They turn to him. He is the one who gives life. You see it again and again throughout the scriptures. Abraham and Sarah, remember, can't conceive. But who gave them Isaac in their old age? God did. Isaac and Rebekah can't conceive. But he gave them Esau and Jacob. Hannah can't conceive. She's crying, asking God for a child. God gives Samuel. Zachariah and Elizabeth, remember in the New Testament, can't conceive. God gives them John, John the Baptist. Today is Mother's Day. Talk about fertility and we talk about motherhood. Ladies, who is the one who has given you your children? It's God. See, God's people, we approach fertility differently. Does it mean you can't go to the fertility doctor? No, it doesn't mean that. But our hope is not in a fertility doctor. Our hope is in the God of the universe because every single child that is conceived is a gift directly from his hands. God's people approach fertility and motherhood differently. We go to him looking and praying and tr for our children. And he is the one who gives them to us. You see how this strange, obscure Old Testament passage, if you get down to its core, what it's talking about, fertility, 
how it actually can give us wisdom and insight for everyday living, for us. Let me give you one more. It says, at the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your town shall come and eat and be filled that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. Well, this is an Old Testament civic tithing ritual. It doesn't apply but the principle still does. This is talking about those who have land. Just like today, farmers, if you have land, you can produce crops. If you don't have land, you're sort of stuck. Same thing in the Old Testament times. You have your harvest that comes in. The idea was those who have plenty should share and care with those who are destitute, the fatherless, the single mother, the sojourner, and God will bless them. See, that principle still applies today to us too, doesn't it? When God's people who have plenty share with those who are in need, God will bless the work of their hands to enable them to share more. That principle still applies to us today. So my words to you are, when you see the Old Testament civil and ceremonial laws, don't just skip them. Read them, but then ask this question, what does this tell me about God and the way he works in life that I can still apply to my life today? Last thing to mention to you is this. The Old Testament laws are not a ladder up which we climb to God. They're a mirror that shows us how far short we fall from God. When we try to focus on keeping the Old Testament Ten Commandments, folks, just so you know, you're going to find yourself frustrated. Just like I find myself frustrated because we sin. We can't keep them. But realize they're not supposed to get us to God. They're supposed to show us our sin also. And what it does is it sends us running, running to Jesus, who is the one who kept the law and who died in our place for our sins, to bring us to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the Old Testament Ten Commandments. And I pray that you would help us to desire to love your law, that you would change the attitude in our hearts, which oftentimes rebels against your law and sees it as restrictive, that we would see that your law was given to give us freedom, given to give us joy, given to help us to understand your character and to love you more. And so I thank you for your gift of the Ten Commandments that we'll be studying in the next few months. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.